Hey everyone, it's Frank with another episode of the Class Dojo podcast. So to introduce today's guest, imagine you're a teacher, if you're not already, and you're in your classroom at the end of the day and all the kids have gone home, and in walks Elon Musk, the billionaire founder of Tesla, SpaceX, and PayPal. And he says, my kids are in your class, and I think you're doing a great job, but I don't agree with the philosophy of the school. I think we could do a way better job if we just started our own school and just rethought everything from scratch. I will give you whatever you need to make that happen. Are you in? Well, this actually happened to today's guest, Joshua Don. Here we go. I guess we could start with what is what is Ad Astra and how did you end up there? Yeah. God. So Ad Astra School, 47 kids on the campus of SpaceX. We started with eight, uh, all boys, and over time have just added kids. Uh, so SpaceX for the first year or so, and then a small house, and then finally at the main campus here, um, sort of at the western end of what SpaceX is sort of building in terms of their empire. And uh, really you know, third grade through eighth grade is yeah. generally the age range. Yeah. Okay. So SpaceX is a rocket company started by, by Elon Musk to go to, to go to Mars for people who don't, don't know that. I'm not sure how familiar most teachers are with that. So y- you were, take me back to how you, how you got involved, how this whole thing got started. Cause you were there at the very beginning, right? Yeah, so uh, you know, Elon had kids at this school called Merman School for Gifted Children on Mulholland Drive, and you know, it was, it was you know a very nice school, lovely campus. But the idea was to try to do something a little bit different. So he asked if I was up for that, and I was, of course, like shocked at the possibility and opportunity. And you know, had those first few weeks were really tough as I was talking to my family and telling them about this opportunity, and they like couldn't really make sense of it. You know, it's like, well, where's it going to be, and how many kids, and who's going to teach? Like, are you going to teach? You can teach all these kids. Who are the kids? Um, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of questions that I of course could not answer. It was not able to really to answer until, you know, September of 2014 when we started. Uh, so you mean your family couldn't make sense of it? Cause like, why are you leaving this? Uh, you have, a, you have a good job that, that makes sense where you know what you're going to be doing. Like, why are you going to leave that to do something where you have no idea what it's going to be? Yeah, yeah. And I think also it was sort of like, well, what's the difference? You know, teaching is tangible, right? It's like, oh, you teach, these are your kids, this is your class, this is the school that you teach at, but to create a school. Right. Um, and then, you know, at that point, you know, right, right after the first meeting, I wasn't like, I didn't have like the concept of the school fully fleshed out in any sense. I really was just like, yeah, I was going to, you know, based on the principles of the things I've seen work in classrooms, I was going to try to create a school. It's based on problem solving and collaboration. And, you know, just try to do things differently. But for my parents, you know, who are, you know, very amazing people have supported me creatively my entire life, even, even as creative people, like this was seeming like a really daunting challenge to create like the best school in the world for, for, you know, a few kids. Yeah. Um, what was that first, uh, take me, what was that first meeting? Like you mentioned you had that, the first meeting with, uh, with Elon, I guess, what was the, how, yeah, how did that go? I mean, it went really well. I was, of course, terrified. Um, I'd never been to SpaceX. I'm not an engineer uh, by any means. So I tried to just not ask silly questions about rocketry. (laughs) And then uh, really just sort of got to talking about 
what it is that makes it like what it, what is it about a school that makes a school great? Like how do mm. we spend time in really thoughtful ways? You know, for our first principles approach, so to speak, um, right. of school of school design and and like what are the principles that like the you know the best school for you know kids that really like love to learn and are really curious like what would that look like? Like how can schools you know be uh, enabling rather than always sort of drawing the lines that kids are asked not to cross? So. Uh, really like a wide ranging conversation, but one in which it was clear that to do this well, we would have to kind of rethink how we spend time with kids, um, mm. doing this thing we call school. Interesting. So what were the, what were the principles that you had at the time in terms of like how, you know, what, what you would do differently based on your, the private school experience and, and what you were going to do for, uh, for the school at SpaceX? Yeah, I, I think we had to start with like, how do we create a school that that children love? Mm. And um, I mean, I, re I really like mean that. And and they don't just love it because it's easy or because it doesn't ask much of them. I mean, kids, in my experience, tend to rise to challenges and really respect independence if you give it to them. So kind of independence with accountability, um, but then also trying to find ways to just solve like really contemporary problems. So having kids you know, as much as this school experience is a simulation, like make it as, I don't know, as like as true to the world as possible. And in my mind, the best way to do that was to design like really huge projects, um, some smaller, but some like really big and expansive where kids are making really tough decisions um, as they go through the project and then are, you know, working in teams and kind of measuring their success as they go all the way through. So not just sort of these one-off worksheets or just sort of this like logical progression, but something that has like true novelty. And I know it's novel because, you know, I've spent the time to create it. Yeah. Are those, are those two, the two principles you mentioned are like, a, you know, school that kids really love and something that is, that's like tied, tied to the world or, or feels real to the kids. Are those two things tied together? Does, does like the one of them drive the other, do you find? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I think that, and really like when we have people visit the school, the thing that I talk about are not our facilities or the credentials of our teachers or really anything else. I mean, it's really just like the projects, you know, I, that's, I spend most of my time talking about the projects we've designed because those are the things that bring out the joy in kids and, and those like tough conversations and watching the kid grapple, uh, with teen options that are seemingly equivalent, you know, whether they're deciding to invest money in disease research or in city infrastructure, like that sort of thing is really exciting to watch as a teacher and to be able to do that. Um, not every second of every day, but certainly at predictable times throughout the week, that gets kids just talking at lunch and recess and really just, mm. they're just really wanting to just dig deeper into those questions. And it puts me in a position in the classroom where I'm not the sage, I mean, I'm not the, the, the true expert in here. I'm really just posing a question that I've thought about, but one that I'm equally fascinated with. And uh, I just am really curious to see what they have to say. Interesting. So what um, you were, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you did Teach for America before going to the Merman School. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Teach for America in Las Vegas from 2008 to I was there for four years, but the core experience is just two years. OK, so you so you were for four years, you were a teacher. And, and I think Teach for America is primarily like like low in lower income schools. Like I imagine like more crowded classrooms, uh, probably not quite the resources you have at at SpaceX. Is that is that about right? That's that's fair to say. Yes. It's a, yeah, absolutely. So I guess what I'm really curious about is I, I think we're teachers listening to this. It's it's like, you know, your experience at 
at the Merman School and at SpaceX is one thing, but those are obviously, in, in SpaceX's case, it's totally unique. Um, and you're able to start completely from scratch. And in the Merman School, obviously, like it's a, it, you know, it's pretty, pretty elite exclusive school, I imagine. What do you, how do these, uh, how do these principles apply for something like a, you know, a school where like a Teach for America teacher might be stationed or, or even just like a normal, um, you know, sub, suburban or, or city school? Like, are these things still relevant? Were you able to, you know, instantiate some of these principles when you're teaching in those kind of schools? I mean, all these ideas started in Las Vegas. And, you know, I guess one of the things that uh, someone who, I forgot how much time you have with kids when you're teaching like fifth grade as an example. I mean, you mm. have them for when they walk in at, you know, usually pretty early, 7.45, maybe school starts at 8.15. Right. There's, and then you have them until like 3, 3.30 and there's only one special, you know, that you, maybe it's PE or art or, or mm. music or whatever it is. So really besides that and a lunch and a short recess, you have the kids for a huge amount of time. And one thing I was really bad at as a young teacher uh, were transitions, you know, we're doing right. math and all of a sudden like it's time for ELA and mm. I, I don't, I don't, I can't even really remember how bad I was, but in those early days I just wanted something that would just work as a nice transition activity. Like, okay, so we're ending this math lesson. Like now we're going to start talking about this ELA uh, piece, but like, what if I just posed some sort of provocative question, mm. um, some question that would just sort of like make you sort of think for a second more than just have like a, a baseline response. So I started experimenting. The first question I asked the kids was, if you could pay a teacher, a firefighter, a soldier, a police officer, or the mayor between one and $5 signs, like you would do like at a restaurant, right? $5 signs being the most and $1 sign the least. The question was, who would you pay the most and why? So what I love about that question is that well, first, first of all, you can't not take a stance because you can't repeat any dollar amount. You're automatically whether you put the you know police officer five dollar signs or two dollar signs or whatever else you're assigning value relative to everyone else and it's not so much about teachers being more or less valuable than police officers but really it's about having kids ask deeper questions about you know well like how big is the town that the mayor runs and you know, mm. is this, is this teacher teach high school or elementary school? Is this, a, is this a, our kids, my kids in Las Vegas always ask, is this a good teacher? You know, is this a teacher that, <laughs> oh, that cares about them or a teacher that is creative or, um, or, or, you know, is this a, a police officer in, you know, who, who treats community with respect that is like, does the right thing. Wow. So just asking some deeper questions They're about jumping right to the most controversial yeah. topics there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like what it means, I mean, what it, what it means to be, have value in a society and that just can't mm -hmm. be like the amount of money that you make, but like what these people do in their essence and how might we, you know, if you were forced to assign value to something that is as broad as, you know, a, a teacher's job, uh, how would you think about that? So those early conversations with my students in Las Vegas have really um, been part of the development of Ad Astra's curriculum and certainly this uh, conundrums with Class Dojo. Right, yeah. So I guess we haven't introduced that concept here on, on the podcast yet, but the, the conundrums are exactly what you're describing there, which is they're, they're a question that the kids have to really think about. And I, I guess it's basically it's a question where there's no right answer. And so and particularly the way you've designed them is it's a question where there's no right answer and you know that the kids are going to disagree on it so that they're going to have to explain why they disagree and, and, and try to come to some resolution. Is that, is that about the, the gist of it? Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, conundrums, we'd really try to pose 
questions that do not take a whole lot of time to like look through them. You don't have to, to plan a whole lot, but really just a thoughtfully posed question that ideally you're wanting your class to sort of be equally divided between the different options. Right. And then to record the response to that question in some way where you can look at the data and really draw conclusions and then have like a really nice conversation that the teacher really takes a back seat um, as you build that structure to let kids really talk and, and change their mind and, and, you know, have you considered this thing or that thing? Uh, that's when it gets really exciting because you could really at its best almost step out of the room and mm. let that conversation continue. How old are these kids that you that you started it with? We start with our eight-year-olds. So you, um, you started with eight-year-olds yeah. at Ad Astra, but and what, yeah. what about in, in, in Las Vegas in your, in your uh, previous career? Yeah, I only had fifth graders, so you had fifth graders. 11, 12-year-olds. Yeah, yeah that's okay. where I started. But still, these are uh, those pretty sophisticated questions for... I mean, I mean, I I would think when I when I saw the kind of questions you guys were doing at Ad Astra, and then we, when we did the uh, research with Class Dojo, where we took some of your conundrums and then like started going out to like just just normal classrooms in the San Francisco Bay Area, I always uh, I, I always thought, and I think the teachers thought as well, like you know these are pretty. I guess we weren't sure how it was going to go over with the kids because I I think it's something that's not really, I guess you you don't see it a lot in like most classrooms, like kids kind of wrestling with these. They're sort of sort of like ethical issues almost, and it's it wasn't clear to me when we started that the kids were going to be really engaged with this. But I, I guess you you came up with it through like trial and error, so you kind of had like a better idea of like what what these kids are actually capable of. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's not this is not like an ad astra thing or a, a Merman school thing. I mean, it's really mm-hmm. for me, it's just kids. I think it's actually just people just really like making decisions, right. decisions, judgments. Um, considering like multiple correct answers or there's no really correct answers to considering multiple perspectives. I think it's just something we do so naturally, but I feel like, you know, kids are at Las Vegas in particular, kids are always arguing about, you know, LeBron versus Kobe, or they were arguing, you know, Drake versus Jay-Z or, or whatever it was. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, it, we're, we're always constantly engaged in these conversations where we're sort of weighing different factors in different ways. So I just took it into a more traditionally, I don't know. I guess ethics is the way that I naturally go when I think of these sorts of things and just posing questions that have these wrinkles that kids, for whatever reason, it's not for whatever reason because I think we all are drawn to these, but we're drawn to them because there's just sort of this sense of possibility of like, ah, like, yeah, I I guess you're, I guess you're right. Like, I disagree with you, but like, yeah, that's a good point. Like firefighters are vital to the community, you know, and I, you know, I put them as $1 sign, but like I could see it there being $5 signs. So that sort of thing is really healthy to have that cognitive flexibility to just be able to disagree and have civil discourse in a school setting. Yeah, I, I guess it's like pretty it's pretty like like you mentioned, like the the type of like LeBron versus Kobe or, or like Batman versus Superman type of questions. And I guess it's like a pretty fundamental human thing to just want to argue about these things because we you know, we you know, biologically or evolutionarily, we grow up in groups and. <laughs> And we've got to make decisions, and the you know the kind of the way we do that is just we talk things out, we hash things out. I wonder uh, how much were you thinking about the, you know, the I guess the societal like implications of this, like like we you know we need to raise kids who are able to talk through issues so we can you know figure things out politically or so they can solve problems. And how much were you just trying to come up with something that the kids were going to enjoy doing, like we're going to love, like you said. Yeah, I think I think it always starts with. Uh, with the conflict. So I, I I don't think that I planned these to have some powerful thing to say about like what the future of the world should look like. Although mm. I do believe that any like 
the best possible futures look like futures in which we're able to have conversations and hash things out and yeah. respect is respect difference of opinion that that's thoughtful thoughtful and reasonable absolutely um, but for me it's just finding I mean really based on what the kids are interested in and I guess my my real dream with something like conundrums is that teachers you know wherever you may be would find questions that are really relevant to their kids um, it's not that mm. these these set of a few questions are are the best or the or the most or anything superlative in that sense, but they're really just examples of the types of questions that are relevant to our kids at Astra. And I think you know most kids would find interesting, but you could certainly ask questions that are more aligned to the specific context and circumstances mm. of a group of kids, which I think that's when it gets really powerful. But but I have to say also there's something really nice about stepping outside of your context and just sort of weighing in on a topic that maybe unfamiliar to you, right, whether it's right. sort of like, you know, fishing quotas or, you know, a dry erase marker right. competition or, or whatever it may be. You could really create a conundrum out of nearly anything where there's conflict. Yeah. So I, you've, you've talked about that quite a bit just in our conversations like the I guess the goal with this with the, the conundrums project we've done together is to take a couple of the, the, the conundrums, the questions that have come from your experience and that, you know, kids are going to be pretty engaged with and sort of use that as like a almost just like guide rails or like a teaching tool for teachers so that they can understand this format but then your your goal is that you want teachers doing this themselves for their their local community and their context is that is that right yeah i mean i think you know I, I know, I've been creating conundrums or something similar at, at both a small and much larger scale. I mean, conundrums represent sort of like the most, the first building block of this class I call synthesis. Mm. So, I mean, if you think about the number that I've created or, or my, you know, people at, at Astra have created over the time, I mean, it's probably still less than a hundred. It's probably more like 60, 75. So right. to imagine that we would be able to create, you know, hundreds of these that could be you know, implement into classrooms. I mean, that's a great idea, but I think realistically we create some that go different directions and show some of the different structures that go beyond even just the conundrum structure. And, but then really yeah, teachers create their own because that's really exciting when your kids walk in and you've created this conundrum that's based on a few pretty like straightforward principles, really just right. give them between three and five options. Um, use some quantitative data uh, if you can give us some qualitative factors and then your goal is that you know if there are five options that you know 20 percent of the class picks you know each of those five options like that's kind of your goal in creating it now sometimes that won't happen and sometimes it'll be skewed heavily one way or the other so then adjust one of the parameters yeah you know i, I wanted to yeah. ask you about that like because it seems like you have a pretty good sense i just i realized how hard it was and we were doing our initial research and like going and testing this out with class dojo teachers like it's pretty hard to come up with a question where the kids are going to be evenly split on it but you you kind of seem to have an instinct for it i get did that did that just arrive from trial and error like trying this out with your kids in in las vegas or were you right away able to jump in and kind of figure out good questions it's uh, it's just been trial and error, and it's been from the first day I posed that question about uh, civic employees in Las Vegas until mm. you know as soon as today, because um, you know I, you know, as an educator, like I, there are things that I'm, I'm my strengths and weaknesses, but one of my strengths I have to say is like my ability to create a lot of new content, and when you create a lot of content and you have you know kids that are sort of wrestling with it and, and engaging in it, you get some really good, you get feedback every single day. Right. So what I found is that, you know, as long as the conflict itself gets to a, a place of tension, 
uh, with you, you can really adjust the, the parameters in a way that will start to make intuitive sense the more mm. you do it. And even if you just implement the ones that are created, you know, through Class Dojo and Ad Astra, you will definitely start to to get a sense of what's going to play and what's not going to play. And also, and that's why it's so powerful to create for your own kids because you start to see where they start to fall. You know, are they? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's what that's what's really interesting. I mean, obviously, yeah. if you ask the civic employee question, depending on where you live in this country, you're going to have a very different answer. Right, right. Um, and I think that that's you know, and I think looking at it in that way you could if that's a question that's really provocative or, or interesting for your kids to talk about or something that really brings out a side of them that you wouldn't hear otherwise then that's like a really important place to continue you know if you think it's appropriate to go in that direction yeah yeah i'd love to be um, able to do something like that through the, the you know the class dojo has this big network of teachers and, and and communities and classrooms it'd be really interesting to see if if you know we had like a conundrum a week or something like that and you could see what kids from other parts of the country you know, other parts of your community, other parts of the world, even like think about these questions. Um, so I, I hope the teachers, you know, pick this up and will, you know, give us give us more ideas on ways to innovate with it. Um, because I, I really like that. Uh, I, I get really excited about this like hearing you tell the story here because this is totally something that's like uh, it just it just fits so well with the mission of Class Dojo, which is you know we're we're trying to connect teachers. Um, and we're, we're trying to like bring communities together, but we're also trying to connect teachers to this bigger, this bigger network really. And the, and the idea is like right now, it's kind of a lot of things in education tend to happen top down where you get some experts go in a room and for like 10 years figure out like the perfect math curriculum. And I, I think that doesn't actually work that well. I think it's way more interesting when you can do it bottom up. And that's why your story is so interesting because it's like, it comes from this problem that you have as a teacher. And then it's, it's completely like, you know, grown up from your experience to you went through this process of discovery and now every teacher on the class dojo network can, can like benefit from your trial and error and, and and your process of discovery and just kind of like it's like the old adage of like standing on the shoulders of giants like like they'll be able to just take all the work you've done and i imagine probably come up with a lot of cool stuff on top of it that like you would never think of or that they just might not be relevant for your kids but that will be uh will be relevant for theirs um, so it's, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like as a teacher, I'm always just looking for cool ideas, you know, and it's not so much that yeah. I want to take that idea and use it tomorrow, but it's like I can take a piece of that idea or take the idea wholesale and then, you know, make it part of, you know, my day or part of the year or just this one off thing. Or maybe it's a thing that repeats, you know, like a conundrum could be a thing that happens, you know, once a week at a predictable time or it could be something that you work in as a 15 minute exercise as every part of your day as a do now. Um, I think that to see great examples of work um, anywhere is, is really right. powerful as a teacher. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's funny, like even something I was thinking today with Halloween, you know, coming up, we're, we're just thinking about, um, you know, what kind of question could you ask in this kind of context for kids regarding, you know, the upcoming holidays? And one that would be interesting is like, what if a town said that, you know, all children that trick or treat 10% of their candy that they collect is needs to be pulled into this sort of common fund to go to those that live in maybe a more rural area where there like aren't as many houses to trick or treat. So they have like less opportunity to trick or treat. 10% of all candy collected will go there. The question for kids mm -hmm. that you could ask is, okay, so should it be, should this happen 10% mandatory? Should it be 25% mandatory? Should it be optional? Um, or should this not happen at all? Just, you have four options, right? Interesting, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's interesting, right? So I'll probably ask the kids this one, you know, today or tomorrow, just because, not you know, not a question that's going to change the world in any real way, but it is interesting to hear kids talk about, 
I mean, clearly this is an analog for a much larger conversation <laughs> yeah. that, that we're having as a country. Like, you know, what what would be sort of the, the what we ought, what should we what should we do? What we what ought we to do, knowing sort of the different parameters? So those questions like that for kids, especially when they're again, like both when they're macro level questions and sort of micro level questions, questions that some of the kids a week from now will be thinking about as they go trick or treating around the neighborhood. Yeah, that's when it gets really fun. That's interesting. So yeah. I, some some of these questions seem kind of politically relevant. Do you find the kids, you know, take these questions home and, you know, are, are they are they continuing the conversation at home? Is this something that parents can get involved with as well? I think that it's absolutely geared towards conversations at home. And I think that, you know, it's it's difficult given the way that the media coverage is going these days to really have a, a conversation about sort of the fundamental issue at stake here. Right. Because there's so many loaded questions that we're all sort of, you know, dealing with every single day. It's really nice to have yeah. a question that's that's pared down. You right. know, it's pared down so that it's accessible so that you don't have to spend, you know, f- you know, years of, of right. background knowledge or research or even like forty five minutes of reading up on it. It's right. really just a simple question. Like, could a you know, should the commander of the first mission to Mars be likable? Like, I don't, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. How, I, I, th- I like to think so. I like but, that one. So that, that's a question that's yeah. like you have, you have one of these conundrums. It's like you're trying to pick a captain for a Mars mission and you have these different mix of qualities. I, I think this is what this, this is right. And you're trying to pick which qualities are most important. Like, are they compassionate, for example? Are they, are they likable? Um, I, I, I forget you some of the Maybe other like, qualities. Re, like resourceful or, right, or, or right. something like that. Right. And you know, it's just really interesting. Like, I mean, we're going to hopefully, um, be having to make that decision here pretty soon. And I'm sure all right. the candidates to be the first commander on Mars are going to be, you know, wonderfully competent and qualified, but you know, I, I would imagine that there's some level of likability that one astronaut would exhibit over another and, and how important would that be in sort of deciding yeah. who should be, be the first one uh, to be leading that mission. So, yeah, I, I think yeah. That, that's that's initially. I mean, when we first, um, Sam, the, the CEO and co-founder of Class Dojo, and I first came down to visit you guys, I think it was, uh, you know, it, it it was just really exciting to see you guys kind of wrestling with these type of questions in the classroom. Because I think, I think at least for me, I can't speak for Sam, but you know, when I got when I started my career, um, I was really bad at the at the disagreeing with people. Um, yeah, I, I would just, you know, assume I was right. Like, I don't really need to listen. Like, I, I already know what you're going to say. I'll cut you off. Um, and I just like, if anyone doesn't see it my way, they're just, they're just totally wrong and, and, and or, or crazy. Um, and I wonder how much of that is like, you know, you don't, at least when I went to school, like we didn't get a whole lot of practice actually disagreeing with people and like having some, and just realizing that, you know, it's totally normal for people to disagree and, and to see things in different ways. Um, sometimes that are not reconcilable. And I, I wonder how much of this, I mean, you, you guys probably actually see it because you then, you go from these conundrums and then you do these more difficult group projects. I wonder if you see that show up in the kids. Is it is it limited to their, you know, the skills they're learning, are they limited to what they're doing with conundrums? Or do you see that carry on into the rest of their lives in, in say, sports or like other school projects even? Yeah, I mean, we, don't, we obviously don't have any data on this, but but from what I've seen, the kids are more open-minded, more willing to admit that their initial formulation was maybe not right or not, 
you know, fully what they wanted to say. Mm. I just see a lot more like just flexibility and their ability to to work in teams, but also just, yeah, not to come in kind of like you did as a, (laughs) as an, as an early worker at Zojo and be convinced that you're right and to be abrasive in a way that like can really turn people off. And I I feel like with our kids, because they work so often in groups and because they're so confident and not only expressing sort of what they believe, but also defending it and realizing that for the most part, like reason will win out. And if, you know, you're reasonable and you, you know, have reason, you know, you have thoughts for why this is the taking place, then kids really respect that. And they want to be on your team and they, you know, they want to hear what you have to say. But if you, you shut people down and you're not willing to listen or you're so, you know, willfully, you know, ignorant of, of other perspectives, then that tends to be something that's just not, it doesn't go over very well here. Oh, as Yeah. I, I wonder, do you see kids who are you know, who are, who are more like me and they just, I, I think for, for me what it took finally is like, there's a lot of smart people that I'm working with that were just kind of like inescapably right, you know, in times where I was wrong and it, it just became impossible for me to hold on to my initial ideas. And so I, I just kind of learned to be, be more okay with being wrong because it just happened uh, often enough in, in conversation with other people. I wonder, do you see this have you seen that play out with kids in your school? Because I met you get you get very smart kids coming in who have maybe always been like the smartest kid they've known, and now they're they're amongst all you know this group of peers who's pretty, um, you know, probably at their level. Do you have you seen that in either in Las Vegas or at Ad Astra where a kid's like kind of, you know, they I guess become like less abrasive and more more open minded through the course of of doing one of these. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things, you know, given at Astra and like the population that we serve and at Merman School, a school that was designed for kids that are quote unquote highly gifted, right? Uh, whatever that means. Um, I think that, you know, really when I designed these, and I, I still believe this is like, I think that these questions for the kids whose voices are um, heard in some ways like least often, especially in a test prep environment where you're working on like, you know, math content all the time and trying to get kids like up to standard or you're working through like, you know, kids that are maybe a couple years behind in their like fluency, literacy skills. It's like really just kind of puts everyone on an equal playing field, so to speak. Like I wouldn't say that our, you know, quote unquote strongest kids academically, you know, are, are like high flying academic kids are necessarily the best at this sort of thing. Like it's actually kids that don't excel sometimes in the more traditional subjects who really are able to articulate stuff really well. And I I found that some of those kind of sharper voices tend to get, they don't lose the sharpness, but they, they start to gain something, which is that, uh, that, that empathetic viewpoint, you know, that this, you know, maybe, you know, maybe this isn't, exactly right and maybe everyone doesn't feel the same way I do and maybe someone can bring something from their own life experience that's really important and, and helps change the way I think about this thing yeah um, and that's and that's one of the things that's really nice about talking about problems that are not always so immediate to to your community or to your life it's kind of nice sometimes to talk about things that are either years away or, or might never happen or just sort of theoretical because it just kind of gives everyone you know you can bring your own personal experience to the question but really you're all sort of starting on an, on an even playing field as much as, as possible, which is really cool for kids who in a normal day-to-day class don't have a chance really to speak up much at all if you don't know the, the right answer, right? Yeah, yeah. I th- we saw that with the uh, the first series of Big Ideas videos we did. Um, they, they were about growth mindset. I mean, we, we purposely like ended it with a question. I mean, like to your, your point, you talked about earlier, like you're trying to find these questions that have a conflict and it's got to be 
it's got to be real conflict. It's kind of like storytelling in a way. Like you have to have something real where the kids are going to, re- you know, really actually get into it. It can't be, it can't, it can't feel manufactured. It'll just feel off to them. And so yeah. it, it's kind of interesting the parallel between what you're doing with the conundrums and what we tried to do with those big ideas videos. You you try to make it be a conflict that's actually real where there's a real decision. And and, to, and back to the point though, we we ended that video with a with a question, and we always end them with a question. Because we wanted, you know, we wanted that video to just be the beginning of a discussion. We wanted to see if, like, if you can actually get kids to engage. And I, I think that's like that was the most exciting thing for me is to see the hands go up when the video ends and the question get, gets asked, and every kid's hand goes up because it was like, oh, you know, I think they're going to actually be able to express themselves. You don't often see it, it's always like a couple kids' hands will go up kind of repeatedly in a lot of classrooms. And this was something, these kind of opinion questions where you're not going to get it wrong and be embarrassed. You're just, you're expressing the way you feel or the way you think about it. Um, it gives every kid a chance to, to participate kind of no matter their level, even if they're, you know, four grade levels behind in math, they can still have an opinion on, uh, on these types of questions. I think that's, that's something that's super interesting. Yeah, it, it gives the kids and, and whoever's in the room, whatever adults are in the room, it gives them this experience that they have in common. And the ability to reflect on that experience and and really then to track sort of the class's consensus over time is really exciting mm-hmm. too. Like how how as a class, you know, if you're a categorized, maybe it's like a social justice related question, or maybe it's a compensation related question, or maybe it's a allocation of government money question. Like kind of how across sort of similar types of questions, like how do we sort of reason as a class? And then how would that compare to how other classes around the world kind of reason through a similar problem? Not because one is right or wrong, but it's just really interesting to compare difference of thought right. and difference of opinion and perspective. And you'll get that within your classroom, but you also, I, I've seen, I've done this with different groups of kids. I did, I did this with some uh, group of teachers in New Zealand recently. And the question was, if you had one and again, I know this sounds ridiculous, but a trillion dollars to invest in the future of the world, and you can only invest it in $100 billion increments. <laughs> and there are nine, nine options, like investing in the arts and disease research and frontier exploration and brain research and um, you know, ed- the education system, all of these different things. And you know, how do these $100 billion increments? It's just fascinating to see the difference that you'll get within a single group. You know, we right. graph on the y-axis the age, the age, and then x-axis is the amount of money in those increments. And it's fascinating how many people will hedge and try to give $100 billion to each of the nine, you know, only give $200 billion to one of the nine options. Yeah. I right? remember you showing me the data for this one. Wasn't it, it, it like the, the older the kids got, and I think you even did it with their parents too, but the yeah. older they get, it's kind of like the more cautious they become. Like you said, they want to hedge and spread out their bets, but your younger kids are like, one trillion dollars into education or, 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 or some, yeah. you know, they're, they're more willing to like, uh, they have the courage of their convictions, I guess. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I would say 85% of, of people responding to that question are tend to, who give $500 billion or more to a single cause tend to be kids. And yeah, that, you know, what does that mean? And I, well, I think it would be the thing that I like about the conversation that usually follows is that those who have given 500 billion or more to a single cause will acknowledge that the other causes are absolutely relevant and important and one could justify giving all sorts of money to that cause. Right. But for someone, they might say, listen, I think providing basic needs for those who need it the most, you know, food, 
you know, safety, shelter, clothing, those sorts of things. Like um, that is by far the most important thing to me. And I realize that disease research is important. And I, I get that exploring frontiers would be a cool way to spend, you know, human lifetimes. But for me, it's basic needs. And that's, I'm standing behind that. And like, that's really powerful. And I think as adults, we lose that a little bit. Yeah. So you try to, for, you know, trying to kind of form some consensus or you don't want to sort of stick your neck out too far. But for kids, it's kind of great to see them be fearless in that way because that fearless kid adds something to a conversation that an adult who hedges is not adding. Right, um, right. And that's right. That's Even if they don't have yeah. as much information, um, if they, they've, they've read less, they're less sophisticated in their thoughts, they, I like that, that they still have something to add. So because at your school, you're doing this with kids who range in age, different, uh, it's like 7 to 13 at the 7 on the low end and 13 at the higher end. Is that right? 7 to 14, yeah. 7 to 14, yeah. So, so it's, uh, I think that's like a separate challenge. Like how do you get something for where kids in that broad a spectrum can, can all contribute to the conversation? It sounds like you, know, you found a way with these, these types of questions. Um, and I, I just yeah. think uh, the the implications of this are really interesting. I, I really I'm really excited to see how you know how once we roll this out to like a larger group of teachers, like how they incorporate this because it seems like it really gets to the heart of you know how we make decisions in groups as society. And it's uh, I don't think a lot of us got a lot of practice of this at this growing up. And I think the implications of like what happens if every kid just you know, really has practiced and gotten the tools for having difficult conversations and and making decisions with people who always, who don't always uh, see eye to eye with them. Like the society that that could create, it seems like it seems like really interesting. And I'm I'm just glad that we're you know Class Dojo is able to help you take this idea and this in this vision and try to try to roll it out at a larger scale um, and see what happens because I think it could be pretty pretty fascinating. Yeah, Robert's just really um, humbled and, and really excited for the possibilities. And, you know, there are many teachers that have been doing amazing things like this for years and years. And I'm just really fortunate to be in a position where, you know, we met and, you know, this conundrum thing can now come to life. And I'm really excited, too, to share some of these larger projects, like some of these bigger projects that are collaborative and have um, many more wrinkles. Me um, too. Yeah. But I, but I, but I think starting with conundrums is a really logical place to start and hopefully it becomes part of sort of every, every day for every kid in the country, if not beyond, because what's, what's more important than this, right? Um, yeah. it's important that we can to communicate to one another. This is foundational to any really exciting future. Yeah. So I like that we start with conundrums because it's, it's easy to, uh, to pick up and you can try without too much risk, right? If you're, a teacher it's five minutes if it doesn't go well you can try again the next day or the next week and it, it's you know it's a pretty low risk thing to do you're not going to lose your job if you uh if you try to do this and the benefits might be might be pretty big if it works out absolutely we know the kids need to be talking to one another this is a really nice way to get it started yeah so i guess i, I there are two things in your last comment that i'm i'm really you know excited to dig deeper into one is like like you said there are a lot of teachers who are doing cool stuff in the classrooms and you know we've we've done some content through Class Dojo, like we we made those big ideas videos. We've done a few other small things, um, but this is the first time we've worked so closely with a classroom teacher to try and take this like you know bottoms up idea that you've had that you've developed through tinkering and trial and error, and then try to help other people uh, benefit from that experience. So I hope this will inspire other teachers. If you're listening to come to us, if you have ideas and things that you've tinkered with and tried that work that you think other teachers might be able to adopt, um, we're really interested in trying to help scale ideas like that. 
And uh, the second thing you mentioned was the, the 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 deeper projects. I think let, let's let's talk about that for a few minutes because I, I find this is like the thing that I'm really excited about working with Ad Astra in the future. You guys have this. Uh, you have these projects that sort of remind me of the of the book Ender's Game, where you have this in Ender's Game there the society's trying to fight off an alien invasion and they have to train the kids from their very young to captain spaceships to fight off the aliens. And the way they do it is they put them in groups, teams, and then they have them sort of like play war games against each other and they keep promoting the winning teams until they, they've got this, uh, you know, you know, this incredible uh, captain, this incredible team. And it seems like what you guys do with these projects is kind of similar, where you break the kids up into teams. You have a really you have a project that's like a like a game almost, like a bespoke game that you're creating. The kids are in teams so that they learn how to collaborate with one another, but then they're also competing with one another. So you have the collaboration and the competition instead of, you know, at the end you give them like a a B or a B minus or whatever. Instead, right. they're motivated by both helping their team, which is like a fundamentally human thing, and like out competing the other teams, which is also a fundamentally human thing. Um, so tell me, tell me about this, about these. I think you call them synthesis projects. How did how did this come about? Yeah, so we have a we have a class at Astra called Synthesis that I teach, which is just devoted to these sorts of problems at, at a small scale conundrums, which are kind of like a one day uh, sort of topic, all the way to these larger projects. So. So, I mean, really this was born out of, it was a kind of a natural progression from the civic employee, you know, questions of the early days to kind of these one-off, you know, who should lead the first mission to Mars? How should we invest this money? You know, how should this neighborhood develop given these factors? And to like, how would we make something that would be like multi-week and really engaging? So an example of this project would be one called uh, LAMA, L-A-M-A. And LAMA was about if students were to curate an art exhibition and they were able to basically rent a work of art from any art museum or you know, archaeological museum in the world and take it to you know one of 10 different cities in an order of their choosing and competing with other teams to do so, like how might that look? So finding, you know, 60 different works of art and antiquities from, you know, contemporary all the way to, you know, I really like Queen Nefertiti's bust, you know, from thousands of years BC. And then having kids compete in auctions to win these different works of art. And each of the different works of art has a unique market for each of the 10 cities around the world. So kids are deciding like, okay, so, you know, their strategy might go from Los Angeles to Mexico City to Sao Paulo, and then they're gonna go to Lagos, Nigeria. Like that might be sort of the the trail they wanna go through. Hmm. So they're trying to find works of art that are gonna bring in the revenue um, and they're going to have to make profit because they're going to have to actually like win these works of art in an auction. Uh, but more than that, they're going to just be always like trading and rethinking their strategy as they win and lose different works of art that they had sort of budgeted to win. So each of the six weeks or so they're bringing some, uh, they're bringing like two works of art to auction, live auctions, silent auctions, all sorts of trading and that's, negotiating. that's real. Like that's with the other it's teams real. in the class. The like other they... teams. Yeah. The other teams are there. They're all competing and negotiating and talking. And then they're designing the, the art exhibition and sort of presenting what they finally come up with, with all the data and all the numbers, uh, the amount of money they brought in their marketing campaign, their designs on SketchUp for the exhibition hall and how they would feature different works of art, dealing with all the ethical implications of, you know, for example, if you bought a, a work of art by Caravaggio, uh, you know, he, he murdered someone. Like, are you comfortable having his work on display or Queen Nefertiti's bust, the Germans essentially stole it what from you, the, the Egyptians. So what, um, do you, what do you find the kids? Are there, do yeah. their answers cluster around those? 
those kind of questions like do you want the art from the guy who murdered someone or they how do the kids feel about that some teams will not touch works of art that have serious ethical questions and obviously as you know we're dealing with this now you know how do we can we separate the art from the artist um, some mm. students are okay with it, but they feel as though they need to have disclaimers. You know, they need to have an ex. You know, their exhibition needs to be very clear that this person was not someone who we'd called you know a good person. You know, mm. at all. Um, it's such an interesting it, way yeah. to teach ethics because there's a cost to that. I imagine if you uh, you're not going to take the art from the artists who uh, you know who are ethically compromised, then you're at a disadvantage in the competition, right? So you you actually have to pay a cost yeah, for your ethics, yeah. which is which is how it works in in the world, right? You can sometimes you can get ahead that's by right. cutting corners, and you have to decide if it's if it's worth it or not. That's right, and that's that's really really a unique thing to see a kid make that mm. sacrifice and take a work of art that is less you know valuable or or to make them less money because they have a real moral concern with the provenance of that of that piece. So that. That piece is what the, the key to all of these is that you give them they're invested because they feel like the work is theirs. You know, they made the decision to bid on that particular work of art. They want it in competition. Right. And now it is part of their collection. And what they do with it is up to them. But really, there's that sense of ownership because they made that decision. And you could run the same simulation, you know, a thousand different times, have a thousand different iterations of how it would go. And right. it's really cool to see a kid that, you know, or a team that said, like, all right, we're going to focus on the impressionists. Um, and then they like lose, you know, all, like uh, the starry night or something. And then it's like they have to reconfigure their team and have to figure out what they're going to do next because that was sort of their plan. And some other team had a similar strategy. And then they earn a lot, earn a lot of art history along the way too. Right, but just kind of incidentally in, yeah, in trying to win win the competition and and right. and help their team. Yeah, right. Yeah, what that, a cool way to introduce like artists and artifacts that are like of less known artists, right? You know, yeah. from around the world and. Um, certainly like some amazing women impressionists that I that I included that you know now this is part of when you're thinking about art history and someone asks right. them in the future to name artists they're not going to necessarily just name like da Vinci and Michelangelo right. and Van Gogh and Monet they're going to name you know all sorts of different artists and I think that that's that's really cool as well so how um I guess th this is one in particular I'm kind of interested in how this could possibly apply for like a normal classroom teacher because obviously you kind of have free reign from uh from 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 elon and and the other parents i guess to kind of do whatever just first principles whatever you see see fit or whatever you think is the best way to do things um but what what i mean when you were in las vegas you i imagine you couldn't do these kind of projects because you've got you know standards that you have to hit and like the reading and and writing that you have to teach um so i guess how, how much do these how much of this could actually apply to to a normal classroom teacher? Could they do this on a smaller scale or, you know, do they, they have to stick with the things that are like conundrums that are kind of like five to 10, 15 minutes? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate in my teaching career to have principals that are really supportive. So I felt as though, you know, if I would go in and say, this is what I want to do. And these are the standards that it covers because of course, all sorts of like speaking and writing and quantitative standards are covered in this sort of work. Right. And, and I said like, this is what I want to do. This is how it's going to work. And this is the type of engagement that I expect out of the kids. And, you know, as long as it was coming from 
you know, the right place. I think that absolutely it could work. And, you know, maybe for some teachers, it's just like a third, I was like Thursdays, you know, it was like kind of like a Thursday afternoon activity, mm-hmm. or maybe it's a Friday morning or, or some other part of your week. And maybe it just happens after the tests are over, you know, maybe right, you get, right. you have to, you're, you're hustling to get through everything by March or April or something. But I've always found that, you know, if you really look at the standards, I mean, as difficult as it could be at times to give compliments to the standards that in some ways sort of are diffusing what we do in classes. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, there are standards that specifically talk about this sort of reasoning and problem solving and multidimensional thinking. So yeah. they're there. You just sort of need to use those as an asset, I think, um, if you have a, some you know, administration that's reasonable and, and willing to kind of give you that time. Um, and the other, the truth of the matter is other times I've had administrators that just were not ever in the classroom, you know, and it's not that I was being <laughs> dishonest. I just, you know, at some point I have to, it's kind of a moral imperative that you, you help spend time for children the way that that's best. And yeah, I, I you know, you have that look, kids have that look in their eyes, you know, it's like, this is the 15th day in a row we've done place value. It's like, you know what, like, let's, let's, um, we need to add some electricity into the room a little bit. So, and I think, you know, adding electricity is justifiable in and of itself. I mean, you have to get kids moving and thinking and yeah. and you're going to get a better yield out of whatever else you're doing if they're engaged, even if it's just for this 15 minute block here. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm so interested to hear from some, some of our other teachers who might've experienced this kind of thing. It seems to me like the standards, like you mentioned, are kind of a, they're kind of a double-edged sword because you have on the one hand, there are things you need to cover and if you're doing a project like this, you can actually point to your administrator and be like, it's covering X, Y, Z standards. And that's a great thing. On the other hand, you can have, you can get too linear with it, which I think is, is basically the kind of the core mistake that is kind of embedded in the, in the system that we have for education in most of the world right now, which is that you, you have this idea that because there are standards and because you can write them out linearly, that kids can learn in that way. Um, that they can they can learn the standard kind of isolated from something else, and you know it, it actually seems to me that we actually learn things need to be tied together. They they that's why stories are so effective in learning. That's why these conversations are effective because it builds like a map in your head um, that that's more just like everything is connected. So it, it, it's more natural to the way that we learn where we don't naturally like separate things into neat clean categories um, like the standards do. For us in our minds, things are just tied together, and so that's that's what these projects can kind of help out with. But that that's sort of the that's where I'd love to see things go is is that we take those standards and we're like, oh, this project actually hits just multiple standards across multiple different subjects, and like this is an interesting way to teach. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not so. You know, we do talk about interdisciplinary studies a lot. I mean, for me, it's not about we're just going to, you know, fuse social studies and English. It's like, what if we just had time that was set aside for compelling problems? And Mm -hmm. it was was the responsibility of, you know, the teachers or the school or uh, as a community for us to be giving kids at a young age really compelling problems to think about and to solve. Some could be solved. Some will never be resolved because they're just conversations that are sort of ongoing, these human conversations we've had since the beginning of time. Right. Um, I, I think that it's, we just have to find 
away, whatever, whether it's through standards or through its, its, its own multidisciplinary class, but some way to justify that time. And right. for me, the lesson of Ad Astra is not that every school should be like Ad Astra. It, it never could be because yeah. of the resources involved to create something like this. So for me, I, I you know, I want to be really honest about what comes to a place of true ingenuity versus what's a product of resource. Mm-hmm. And for, yeah. for me, I feel like, you know, conundrums represent a type of thinking that should be sort of in all schools. I think most of us can agree that that's the case. And then just to use that Astra in any content that we we share, just as a, you know, I've been given this amazing opportunity to create, you know, this amazing school for 47 kids without restrictions, without uh, a board, without a superintendent, without uh, expectations of smarter balance assessments at the end of the year. Yeah. So I guess the lesson for me is like, I don't have those constraints. Right. And this is like what I think, what I've seen to create a school that children love, like this is the type of work that they want to be doing. And they increasingly want more of it and they want more complexity and sophistication. So I guess the lesson for me is just, you know, as humbly as I possibly can say it. You're like, saying the kids, the kids want more complexity. The kids want more. Yeah, they demand more because they mm. they're like, oh, that's like yeah. one of those. But like, oh, like that twist is interesting. Like they start to mm. question the questioner, right? They're starting uh-huh. to to ask questions about the parameters of the questions and the different incentives. And my biggest fear now is not even so much that I create something that the kids are not engaged in. It's that I have missed a hole that allows one team to sort of win the game, or I've created an option that is like too strong or too weak. It's like the kids are so attuned to this because it's just sort of in their in their blood now because they've been doing it since they've been here for some you know it's, this is their fifth year um, and I, I'm really excited regardless of what they do in the world to see these kids who have been sort of grown up in this sort of problem solving environment to see how they approach problems with an ethical bent kind of going forward it's exciting to me. Um, yeah yeah I think for me too I'm really excited when we can get to the next stage where we can uh we can help you hopefully take some of these projects out and uh, and get some other teachers trying them. And, and you know, I'm, I'm curious to see if teachers can find the time to do this kind of thing. And you know, if if there's a way that we can help, um, like you said, obviously there's there's some differences between Ad Astra and, and a normal classroom. But I, I think I think what's interesting about you is you have that experience where you've you've done you you know you've been in like normal classrooms, then you've been able to do it all from scratch. I think maybe you have some kind of insight into you know, what is, what's transferable and what's not. Um, yeah. And also I think there's like, this is, this is, is really core to class dojo. Like you mentioned, some of these things just aren't going to work in other classrooms. I think that's like a big part of our philosophy here, which is we think there's no, people talk about reforming the education system and then they immediately start talking about, well, you know, here's the answer. And it's like, that's that's not going to work. Every classroom is different. Everyone has different context. I think what actually will work is teachers being able to see what other teachers are doing that's innovative and being able to take that and adapt it and use that creativity that they have and the passion that they have to adapt things to their situation. What I think is not going to work is coming up with a new system you know, based on 21st century education principles or whatever buzzwords people use. I think that's not going to work because every classroom is different. I mean, your classroom in Ad Astra is so different from your classroom in Las Vegas, but even classrooms in Las Vegas are going to be very different from one another. And the one thing we can be sure is not going to work is like another top down, like get some experts together and figure it out. I think what's actually going to work is people like you and other class dojo teachers sharing their ideas and, uh, and, you know, making it work for their, for their environment. There, There is, there is no way to like remove the human element to this which I think is actually exciting. It's a more exciting future than 
you know, Ad Astra take, makes the new standard model and then we export that everywhere else in the world. I think that's that's not the kind of world we want to live in anyway. I totally agree. I totally agree. <laughs> cool, man. Well, let's, uh, let's end there for now. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. Anytime. And- and thanks for uh, thanks for sharing your ideas with us, and you know, really really excited to get them out there and see what happens. Yeah, I can't wait to get the feedback. I'm really excited to hear how these work in classrooms or how they don't work, or and I'm really excited to see the first conundrums that are created outside of that Astra. Me too. Me too. Well, let's see what happens. Thanks, Josh. All right, thank you.